Hello, everyone. Welcome to God and Other Delicacies. I'm Nicholas D'Augusto. Thank you all for being here. I hope this show is finding you healthy, safe, and sane wherever you are in the world. Today, I have the privilege of welcoming Megan Weber to the show. Megan is the co-founder of the nonprofit charity Know the Glow, which aims to eliminate preventable early childhood blindness. Megan launched Know the Glow after her son Benjamin was diagnosed with Coates disease in 2009. Megan also sits on the advisory board of the Vision Center at Children's Hospital Los Angeles and works to support the doctors and patients there through the volunteer organization Bright Eyes. Megan and I have met just briefly, but I'm thrilled that she's here to tell her story. Welcome to the show, Megan. Thank you. So excited to be here with you today. I'm thrilled that you decided to be a guest today. I met you just briefly through a little university chat that we all had. You graduated from Notre Dame. I graduated from Marquette. We both participated in this thing. And I was struck by your story and really interested in your charity. And I'm just really glad that you're here to talk about it. Well, thank you so much for having me. I know that was a wonderful way to be introduced. And I love that we have that shared connection with Notre Dame and Marquette. My mother went to Marquette and my father went to Notre Dame, as did I. So uh, it was great to bring those two universities together as well. Megan, what is Coates disease? So Coates disease is a disease, a blinding disease of the eye that is occurs when uh, the blood vessels in the eye start to leak fluid inside the eye and the body doesn't wick it away quickly enough. So it starts to leave behind different lipids and fats and sediment that collect and start to cause the uh, retina to detach and just slowly, gradually start to steal your sight in the affected eye. Tell me a little bit about Know the Glow and how it's grown since you conceived it six years ago. So Know the Glow as an organization uh, started after we were diagnosed with Coates disease, which, um, as I said, it's a disease that robs the sight from your eye, but it's a rare disease. And it was uh, such a strange way that we identified the disease in my son. Uh, He was six years old at the time, and he was totally verbal, had no reason to not share with me that he couldn't see out of that one eye. But when we did ultimately determined that he had this vision loss after finding these photographs that kept showing this glow in his eye and discovered that he actually had almost no vision in his left eye, but the other eye had just been compensating so beautifully that he really hadn't even recognized that he had no vision there. We began treatment at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, but finding out that this crazy glow in photographs was an indicator of not only this rare Coates disease, but over 20 different uh, eye diseases and cancers, some of which can be fatal, like retinoblastoma. We started to recognize that here was some little, uh, this little symptom, this one little flag that was kind of waving out there that people weren't aware of. And so we started this campaign just to build awareness and to try and help other families out there identify this blinding disease before it has a chance to rob their children of sight. And at how old can someone catch this flag, notice this flag, and then still, you know, maybe save 80% of their eye quality or, or vision quality? 
So we try to find children between zero and five. That's typically the age we're targeting to try and identify this. After that, I think children get to be old enough that they can start to recognize or tell you if they've got a problem with their vision in that affected eye. But during those early years, these diseases can be so gradual that they just kind of sneak up on you. And some of them are so dangerous. If they move from one eye to the other, you can lose both eyes. In Ben's case, we caught it so late. He was very lucky not to lose his eye, although he did lose most of the vision in that eye. But for some of the other diseases and especially the cancers, if they move to the second eye, you can uh, it can require both eyes being removed. If it moves to the optic nerve and to the brain, then it can be fatal, and especially outside of the U.S. So in the U.S., as we came to find out, you know, 20% of the children that are diagnosed with retinoblastoma, which is one of the most serious glow-related vision conditions, uh, the mortality rate is 20%. But outside of the U.S., especially in developing countries, the mortality rate is 80%. So we've really tried to work to what started off as a campaign to build awareness just within the United States has grown into a global campaign where we really ultimately hope to eliminate preventable childhood blindness uh, across the planet. Well, it's very exciting, very cool. I work very directly with The Life You Can Save, which is a charity founded by Peter Singer and a guy named uh, Charlie Bressler. And they also work with this type of topic, uh, childhood blindness, but also other types of charities that work with the, the developing world and, and children and, and people suffering extreme poverty. And so it's very cool to hear about you growing it on a global scale. I'm looking forward to hearing your entire journey here. We will get through as much as a person can get through in one hour's worth of time. Thank you for going there. I'm going to take this directly out of any seriousness and ask you about breakfast before we dive right back into serious things. So what did you have for breakfast this morning? Uh, for breakfast, I had a protein shake and black coffee. So I was up early on the Peloton bike. It wasn't time for a big full breakfast, but um, just something to run and go. How often are you on the Peloton bike and how often are you having protein shakes? I love the Peloton bike, especially now during this world of COVID. It's been an absolute lifesaver to be able to have that uh, community right there and that access. So I'm very grateful to Peloton for their ability to make you still feel like you're in a whole class full of people and energized with um, their instructors. So I'm on there as often as I can be. I'd like to say it was five days a week, but it's probably closer to three to four. Pretty good though, Megan. Pretty good. Feeling good about that. <laughs> Feeling good about your workout routine. All right, Megan, how and when were you introduced to the idea of God in your life? Well, I don't remember ever not knowing about God in my life. I mean, I grew up in a very traditional Catholic family in the Midwest, not far from you. I grew up in Kansas City, Missouri. Oh. And my parents were both Catholic. My grade school was Catholic. Everything around us was uh, very religious, you know, traditional church every Sunday. And while we did have friends that were non-Catholic, it was all just a very religious, God-based world, which was all about faith and uh, belief and family. So faith, family, and friends has been a, a you know just a constant chance among our family forever. So it's it's just been part of the weaving of the people that we are as a family. 
when you say that you had friends that were maybe not Catholic, are they Lutheran or the other Christian denominations? Is that kind of what it is? And then there was like, you know, friendly jibing about your particular brand of Christianity, that kind of stuff? Uh, well, our next door neighbor, Aunt Jane and Uncle Ken, were we had a shared driveway. They were Jewish, actually. Oh, But, cool. you know, they were family. We are family. We have a lot of aunts and uncles that aren't really aunts and uncles, but we just were close enough that that's how we've always called them. <laughs> and uh, Aunt Jane and Uncle Ken were Jewish, but were always, you know, exchanging gifts on the holidays and um, very supportive. So it was... Just an open, it was open knowledge, but not something we really talked about. We really didn't delve into each other's faith or or discuss the differences in our faith. We just loved each other. It was just never a, a second thought. So does that mean, too, that you never witnessed or participated in any of their ceremonies or, you know, sit for Shabbat? Did they celebrate Shabbat? Were they yeah, conservative no. Jewish or were they more Reformed? They were more Reformed, but... Never really participated in any of their traditions, no. Our interactions were just more as neighbors and family, and literally we'd go over, you know, we they had a dog named Megan, which was in how we initially met them. Oh, how fun. I started answering to her calling out the, the door <laughs> yeah. for Megan to come in <laughs> yeah, uh, when right. I was about four years old. And so, I love it. You, know, you just walked in. You're like, what do you need? <laughs> well, I didn't know that I was, well, I'll help you out here. I'm four, but I'll do whatever I can. <laughs> yeah, that's no, great. It's never been an issue, but I think as we as we grew older, and uh, certainly you know, I, I went to Catholic grade school, Catholic high school, Catholic university at Notre Dame, and then ended up marrying a man who's actually Mormon. So he's Latter Day Saint, LDS, and I think in the beginning when we were first dating, people thought it would be a real divisive point of our relationship, but instead I think it's been one that's been just the opposite. I think it's been so fascinating to learn about other religions and other ways that different faiths kind of answer those same basic 10 questions that we all have, you know, one shape or another to see how different religions approach the bigger questions in life. And it's always just been, I think, something that's been more of a tied us even closer together rather than separated us. Well, that's really fascinating. I look forward to hearing more about how that journey went. And of course, to talk about how you did, you know, what discussions you had as you were developing your own, the spiritual guidance of your family. So how many brothers and sisters do you have? I have one younger sister and a younger brother. So my sister's two years behind me and my brother's 13 years behind me. It sounds like just a really warm upbringing. Did you have anything from that time period that was really notable uh, as far as a personal either a personal spiritual awakening or something that you remember as being a real touchstone in that moment where where religion started to feel kind of personal to you or faith started feeling really personal to you or something that maybe was noteworthy because it was tragic that something that happened around you that sort of made you understand the world, you know, something, the young you that yeah. awakened to something. Yeah, I think, um, as I mentioned, there's a big gap between my sister and my brother uh, I had a sister who didn't survive birth. Her name was Grace. Mm. And uh, I think that had a huge impact on me growing up. I think I was about eight years old at the time. And, you know, just having her pass and having to comprehend that, understand that at that early age really did shift things into a different focus for me from a religious and 
spiritual standpoint, just in terms of how you fit in the world and how what is what is the meaning behind all of this and how to kind of comprehend it and and find your way through. But it was definitely a, a very personal thing that happened to our family. And even though she was not uh, ever, you know, she didn't live at birth, but she was baptized in the in the OR and they, when they were operating on my mother and uh, they gave her a proper funeral and everything, even though she never really lived a full day. But I think just that experience of watching our family go through that and, and watching it tie us all closer definitely was probably the most profound impact on me as a young girl growing up. Do you remember any of the questions you started asking yourself at that time or what answers you provided for yourself? I mean, I think um, at the time, I remember trying to understand it all. Of course, you know, you kind of question everything and you're wondering, is there a God? Why would God ever let something like that happen? And, you know, as you grow older, you find even other atrocities and things that you try and make sense of and wonder whether you've just sort of talked yourself into this belief or whether there is something really there. And I think I came to this calm when you started to realize just the ability for you to even ask those questions is part of why you have faith in something that's bigger and stronger and much more far-reaching than than you can comprehend. And so, yeah, I think it was the beginning of the kind of the fundamental uh, foundation of a real faith that went beyond borders of just of religion and was much more of this kind of universal comprehension of, of what God is and, and how he works in your in your life. It's been a huge part of, of everything I've done since and leading straight up and through all of the work that we do now with Know the Globe. Very cool. Has your family sort of continued to share that in the same way that it did, the, the authenticity and sincerity of faith, family, and friends? Is that something that uh, all five of you in your immediate nuclear family unit still celebrate together? Have you had separations with or siblings that, you know, took a different route and had to go through that process? Um, no, I think, you know, grace is still a touchstone for all of us. And as a family, there's a scholarship in her name at Notre Dame. And oh, wow. I think she's one that we all turn to as a guardian angel watching over us. And I think, uh, you know, the those experiences when you're young, as long as they're handled in a, a proper way, can be really wonderful building blocks and that tie you into this greater reality beyond what you can see in front of you. So it's definitely been something that continues to be a part of our, our world as a family. You know what? We're going to take our break right here. It's a little early, but this is a perfect place to stop for just a moment. And we'll be back in just a minute with Megan Weber. At times like this, it is necessary that we ask ourselves what is worth talking about, what is worth listening to, and what we each can do to make the world around us better in our own small way. Discussions revolving around a person's beliefs and perspectives on God are something I personally can speak to, and my intention is to create a space where our deepest feelings about God and life can be expressed, heard, and better understood. That is one of the motivations behind God and Other Delicacies, and it is my humble hope that it contributes to the positive side of the cultural ledger. It is my intention to continue to create opportunities here for the presentation of those ideas that are different than mine. 
so that I can listen to them, come to understand them better, and hopefully discover ways in which I and each of us can participate in fostering communities that are ultimately more fair and loving for all. Hello, everyone. We're back with Megan. And what starts to happen as you begin to get your first foothold on adulthood at college, at Notre Dame? And what does it mean to you that now you're off on your own and beginning to articulate not only your first shot at life direction, but what your faith is now that you're outside of your your home umbrella? So, yeah, so I think, you know, my life at Notre Dame was wonderful. I had such an amazing four years. I wouldn't change a day of it. I had so many wonderful people in my life then and surrounded by such uh, great friends and such a great support structure. It was uh, a fascinating place to be. But I think at the time, it was kind of ironic for me because talking about faith, it's, um, you know, at Notre Dame, there was a church service being offered every hour on the hour. And yet somehow I hardly ever managed to even make it there on Sundays, much less in the middle of the week. Um, mm. And yet that foundation was still such a, a through line that really carried me forward. I think the life after graduating, I moved to Chicago and then moving out of that kind of little bubble of a perfect environment in South Bend was interesting because now you're in the big city and trying to find your way off on your own and start to build your career. And now who are you outside of this sort of protected world that you're in? Um, and that's where I ended up meeting my husband, B, who moved to South California, which sounded like the other side of the planet at the time. And, <laughs> uh, the whole idea of you know, starting life anew out on the West Coast was a complete shift, but it was an exciting one. And once we moved out here, um, I wondered how in the world do we fit in into this crazy state, which it is a crazy state, <laughs> but the... Um, life here once we started to have a family was fascinating because, again, uh, that same aunts and uncles concept from my youth became now something I was transitioning to my children who grew up calling all of our closest friends, uh, Aunt Caitlin and Uncle Tom, Aunt Sandra and Uncle Richard, even though we were not uh, physically related at all. And that was a, a wonderful way to kind of build family away from home and to surround our children in the faith that we have out here on the West Coast and still carry forward a lot of those traditions from our youth. And as I mentioned, my husband is uh, LDS and so carrying forth his traditions as well. And it's been a, a fascinating journey to kind of see how that has now developed uh, these children into the young teenage young adults that they are becoming. Well, let's talk about that journey more. So first of all, how do you meet your husband? Do you meet through a knowledge that you're both faith-oriented. What did you go to Chicago for? What was your professional life before you started, before you became a mother and started running these charities, things like that? So I was a recruiter at a company called Whitman Hart in Chicago and loved uh, that world and loved kind of being able to work with people and bring them into a company that was growing and thriving and changing and helping to be sort of that uh, agent of change for them to bring them into this exciting uh, company at the time. And I met my husband, who's an investment banker. So the, the company that I was with was getting ready to go public. And he was with the investment banking team that was uh, helping them to manage the IPO and all that. 
but at the time, uh, we were just friends for the first year. I was dating someone, and then he was dating someone, and so that we had about a year where we were just kind of interacting as friends, and through various business engagements that we were involved with, we would just had come to know each other that way. So it wasn't until after about a year of uh, already being friends that there wasn't even an opportunity for us to date. And we had our first date, which led to the second almost immediately. And four months later, we were engaged. So that wow. Was <laughs> wow. Well, that... that was great, actually. It was a great way to start because you're friends already. Yeah. And we'd yeah. already discussed a lot of the things that we were uh, about. And so I knew him for who he was and for all the things I found fascinating about him. And similarly, I think in the reverse, we both, uh, like I said, had far more in common than we had separating us. So how long did both of you, how long did it take both of you to figure out like, uh, I got to break up with this person so that I can get with Megan or with your husband? How long did your relationships go on before you realized, ah, Really, yeah. who I want to go out on a date with is the woman I've been meeting occasionally <laughs> through work. I know, it was um, it was after about a year, and literally we were going to a coworker's birthday party, and one of the women that he'd been dating had just broken up with him, and we were going to talk about it on the drive there. Oh, she broke up with him. He yeah, he <laughs> for he made her. <laughs> Maybe we should be trying trying at this from a different angle so instead of trying to help him feel better about the breakup. Like, can't wait. Maybe there's something else we could do here. How about a Bulls game? Okay. Oh, is that what it was? It was a Bulls game? <laughs> yeah, we ended up going to the Bulls game. Oh, how great. Oh, oh, what years? What years? So we were back there. Let's see. It was in like two, 1997. These are great Bulls years. Oh, yeah. I was there. You saw a great game. Amazing years. It was some tremendous time to be in. Chicago, uh, everybody sure. was getting rings on their fingers around the Bulls uh, that time. Huh? You're getting married. That's a great city. They're getting ring. They're getting championship rings. The Bulls are giving rings to everybody that came to their games. Okay, so he gets broken up with first. Yeah. And then you're like, damn it. Here's and we went the out window. to talk about his <laughs> poor breakup. <laughs> and then you're, all of a sudden we realized, you know, I think I think it'll be okay with this breakup. <laughs> and then you went well, home, and then you day. were like, "Listen, Jim, I'm yeah. sorry, man. Uh, what was you know? You don't have to give me your ex boyfriend's <laughs> name. But the point is, is that then you, how long did it take you once he was single? How long did it take yeah. you to put it together? No, I was already single at that time. Oh, you so were already like one, single. One okay. or the other. Like in the beginning, I was dating someone, and he was single, and then. Uh, the reverse, you know, I was single and he was dating someone. So then once they broke up, that's when things took off for the two of us. Oh, wonderful. You were never intimidated by his uh, Mormon faith. Uh, both no. of you, both of you deep faith, it sounds like, right? I mean, you're both devout. You're not, neither of you are expressing yeah. uh, concerns or doubt. What you're expressing is a deep devotion to your, each of your respective practices. And yeah. through that, you're learning about the others. But what's the touchstone point for the both of you is that you're both devout. You're both very clearly, this is a big part of your life. Yeah. And I think um, in learning more about his religion, I was so, I kept waiting for like, where's this one thing that's going to make me be like, okay, I can't go there. (laughs) But it was almost like he believed everything I already believed plus plus. So he has a lot of extra pieces to his religion that are, you know, additional add-on elements that are wonderful. They're all just, you know, great other approaches to, uh, faith. And so it was never a negative. And as I said, since he already knew so much about the Catholic faith and already believed in 
most of the elements of it in one way or another. Some of the, you know, the conversations we would get into were, I realized we were just splitting hairs over silly things like, you know, whether you know, the Holy Trinity was three distinct and separate personages or whether they're, you know, the Holy Spirit was just this, he doesn't understand this wispy sort of idea of the Holy Spirit not being a physical being. I'm like, okay, at the end of the day, what does it matter? Rather, we'll get there to heaven and find out you're right or I'm right. But either way, I think it doesn't really matter in the, in the day the day by day. Yeah, so we sort of set all those things aside and just move forward in building a life together. Well, it's interesting how I think it's cool that you both enjoyed the theological nuances of your faith. It's clear that you take the text of your faith seriously and you're and you're both getting to that level of it. Okay, so you move out to California, bunch of heathens out here, and you <laughs> and then you you obviously start to have a wonderful life out here. You're figuring out, okay, what's going to be my faith out here? Obviously, I make a joke. This is an cre- incredibly deeply faithful region of the world like any other place, and you can find whatever community you're looking for out here. But when do you both decide? Do you kind of push this question off? about what you're going oh, to yeah. be until you have the child. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Even, even further, actually, because in the LDS... In the I love LDS the jump church, in of, oh, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I cut you off, but you like jumped in before I even finished the question. <laughs> Go ahead. Like, how long do we have before we have to decide this? So in the LDS church, you're not baptized until you're eight. So I had the birth of my first child plus eight years to, to sort it all out. And actually we went even further than that. You didn't push for a Catholic baptism because... Well, I think because... My family is so Catholic, and his family is so Mormon, and we wanted to be respectful of both of our family's traditions and faith. And even though I think, um, you know, a friend of mine once talked about how faith is almost like this huge field. You know, if you could look in any direction all around you, and it goes, expands far beyond what you can see. And then religions are kind of like the farms on the field, and some of them cross over and share, you know, different fences and share different areas of the field. And we all think we've got the whole world figured out in our in our farm, but faith is so much bigger and so much broader. So I think we started to look at where were a couple of farms that crossed over well enough that we could um, really share a foundational faith with our children and help to uh, find a religion that, that felt that rang true for both of us and that would be, again, additive to what we already believed. So we ultimately waited until our children were closer to 8, 10, and 12 and had them all baptized at the same time and uh, as Presbyterians. So we've been, uh, it's been wonderful to kind of look at all those questions and look at everything from different angles. And I think as we've grown as a family, we really just have come to believe that it's far more important to have that general sense of faith than it is to worry about under which roof you're celebrating it. Well, that all makes perfect sense. Seems like a healthy way to run a family, but I have more questions. (laughs) So first, how did your families, your respective families handle this? If you're deeply faithful and he is deeply faithful and you're talking about deeply faithful families, mm-hmm. did the families begin to express, I'm sure they got along because you two got along, but did they secretly express discontent? Did they, were they nervous? If you're deeply religious and deeply faithful, I could envision someone in your family, maybe one of your parents being nervous that the child wasn't baptized, was going to live a number of years without a baptism? Or were these things concerns to your family? Did you have to negotiate all that stuff with them? No, I think 
you know, they were pretty open to it. I think it was totally new. First of all, I don't think there was anyone else in my husband's family who was not married to a Mormon at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, And for my family, learning about the LDS Church was totally new as well. But I think they approached it with the right, you know, mindset. And I think they saw that we were in love with each other and they were supportive of our uh, where we were going together. But, and actually I was surprised even when we got married, we were married in the Catholic church where I grew up and I was shocked that they allowed um, my brother-in-law to co-administer the service of our marriage, which was something I never thought the Catholic church would really be open to doing. Even at the time, the LDS church is more of a lay ministry. So it's, uh, you know, the individuals themselves that are in the roles to perform the ceremony of matrimony and all that. So it was amazing. From the very beginning, we had both uh, religions represented right there on the altar, and Brian's grandmother was playing the organ in the back, and my aunt was singing the song beside her, and I think we just kind of carried that uh, joint approach to moving forward and building a family all the way through. So how do you settle on a Presbyterian faith? Is it driven more by a community of Presbyterians, a particular church that you really loved or people you knew that were Presbyterians that went to a certain church? Did you go like bottom-up community or did you go top-down theology? Um, sort of in the middle. <laughs> we, kind of, we would go to We just basically, churches. we just shot a bunch of paintballs up in the air and then we just followed <laughs> where they landed and they just hit the Presbyterian yeah. place. So we went there. <laughs> we, would, we would just go and visit different churches every weekend and kind of see which one just felt right to the two of us. And we went to the Beverly Hills uh, Presbyterian Church and just fell in love with the church itself, the community that was there, and it just felt like home. And so uh, the Presbyterian Church is very inclusive and open and welcoming, and it just felt like a natural next step. So it was a great, great way to go. Did you practice your Catholicism on the weekends in the first 12 years of your motherhood until this baptism? Did you and your husband practice separately? Did you go to separate churches? Did you occasionally take a child? That kind of stuff? Uh We uh, would go to our children. uh, Well, first of all, my oldest son, Matthew, has epilepsy. And he started having seizures when he was about four months of age. And I think, you know, there's nothing like when you have a child who's in trouble, you, first of all, have crystal clear focus and you're, you know, the whole world falls away. But then, you know, you really are sort of brought into, you know, I was brought right back to where I was back when my sister had passed. And, you know, everything is, is so much more critical and you suddenly have this weight of uh, wanting to make sure you're providing your children with faith and a, a framework um, for them to be supported. And so we were lucky. We lived just a few miles away from Calvary Christian Church and School, which is where my kids were going to preschool. And it's a non-denominational church. And so we went there often together as a family, but never really looked at joining it or having our kids baptized there. It was just a wonderful faith-based community that was there and very supportive. And we loved every minute of that, too. We'd still go sometimes to the Catholic Church. We'd sometimes go for you know the LDS Church and support both of our each of our faiths in in time. But overall, we would just try and walk towards a more middle line. So, how do you identify now? 
What would I'd you say, say you I'm are? Catholic. You're Catholic. I'd say I'm Catholic, uh-huh. and my husband would say he's Mormon. And your children are Presbyterian. My kids would say they're Presbyterian. Yeah, cool. Mm-hmm. That's fun. <laughs> so, Megan, you have these traumatic discoveries in two of your children. Off mic, you kind of half-jokingly said, I'm waiting for my third to reveal what it is is going to be her particular um, challenge. But epilepsy in your eldest, uh, you discover Coates disease in your second oldest child, and these become life-defining. Not only do children become life-defining and enriching, and they teach you all these things, but these are now coupled almost with missions, ways that you not only want to make the world better for them in particular, but in the way that their challenges now connect you with a, a larger outreach, a global outreach, national outreach, that kind of stuff. How quickly or at what point do you start realizing, oh, this is the way I want to respond to this right. situation with my children? I think, um, you know, it's kind of similar to what we were just talking about with religion and picking, you know, the, the, the choice that feels right for you, just having something that sort of resonates in your soul, you know, just that kind of intuition. So I think, you know, when you, when you think about some of the biggest decisions you end up making in your life do have a way of kind of making themselves for you. They just resonate in you. And as you go through life and you see these things happen to you and to your children, I think there's kind of this arc that you're involved with. You know, you start off with who you're going to be as a person and as you build your career and then you focus on building your family and who they're going to be. And then you kind of shift focus a little bit about what what you can do with some of the things that are happening in, in their lives to make the path easier for others to follow you. And that's where this sort of led into this life's mission for me with this Know the Glow campaign with just trying to build awareness about signs of blinding diseases. So when that happened, even though epilepsy, equally uh, hugely impactful in our family, but still scares me to death. My son just had a seizure only a a month or two ago. Mm. And I think it's still such a big challenge. It's hard for me to, to see the forest for the trees in that one and to get too involved. And the Epilepsy Foundation is so well established. But here was this other unique channel with my son, Benjamin, who once we found out what his disease was and we were able to work with the amazing doctors at Children's Hospital Los Angeles and have him treated, um, we then started to see that there was this unique opportunity for us to help other families and to share the stories of other families to help to make that path ultimately to care a little straighter and a little shorter for um, other children and especially to just build uh, an awareness to a broader audience in in the world we're in today where you can take advantage of some of the amazing technology we have through social media and use it in a unique way to help share stories and literally have these children and sharing their stories kind of reach out and help us find other children that don't even know they need to be found. And it's just been this unique thing and it really is interwoven in what we were talking earlier about your faith. I think Every time I try to, you know, it becomes all-consuming and I need to, like, step away from it. I get drawn back in so quickly and so deeply because there's just this energy to it that feels like you're doing what you're meant to do in your life's work. And then these coincidences that keep happening around it. We always joke, um, our little team of volunteers always joke about 
glow incidences because things will just happen that so uniquely fit together in the moment that you just know that this it's something bigger than just the work that you're doing, that you're really, everything will come at the perfect time, at the perfect moment, if you just have faith and just kind of put one foot in front of the other. And it's been this incredible journey of, of growth with the organization and with the families that we've been able to touch, not just here in the United States, but halfway across the world through these three little words and a photo. <laughs> so what's an, a specific incidence of, what's a specific glow incidence? One, one that jumps out as an example of when you just can't deny that there's something bigger than what you're, what you're doing. I had given a speech um, at uh, an event for Children's Hospital in Los Angeles, and there were 400 people in the audience. I'd been so nervous about giving a speech. And after my husband took me out to dinner to celebrate a job well done, was very kind of him. And we sat down to dinner, and it was one of these restaurants where you'd sit outside, and the tables are pretty close together. And uh, just next to us, there was a couple that, you know, they weren't really dressed up for dinner. They looked a little kind of, you know, worn out. Um, and they were speaking in an accent, uh, either Australian or New Zealand. And my husband is so chatty and just you know, doesn't know a stranger. So he started just talking with them. And through the conversation, we ended up finding out that they had just landed and that they were here from uh, Australia and that they had... Uh, come to visit some friends, but we're just going out to dinner. They were asking about other places to go. And I said, well, you don't need us to give you advice. If you're here visiting friends, I'm sure they'll show you all over Los Angeles. And they said, well, that's the thing. We're actually here to to see them. It's the strangest thing. They have a, a child who's uh, in the hospital. They've, they've found cancer in the child's eye. And my husband and I looked across at the table at each other and I looked at the woman and I said, is it retinoblastoma? And she said, yes. How in the world would you know that? I mean, retinoblastoma is so rare. You have no idea. And here we were, like, sitting at dinner next to this couple that was there to visit a family who went on to be some of our closest friends uh, and whose son, Max, has been super involved with the Know the Glow campaign and uh, you know, whose parents are just uh, really engaging and who were treated at Children's Hospital Los Angeles with the very doctors that we were working with. And so just those kinds of coincidences that are way too coincidental to be coincidence. And those things happen all the time. You get that little kind of tingling sensation that, okay, here we go. Just go with it and see, what's, see where this is going to take you. Well, that's beautiful. So how do you measure success with Know the Glow? Like what, where are you at? When you talk globally, like are you, how are you operating globally at this stage? Like yeah. what's your infrastructure and where's your outreach? And do you hire other people that are on the ground there, you know, in whatever country you want to reach to? Right. Well, right now, you know, we, it always, it's always shifting and moving I think in the beginning when we started the campaign, we were hoping to just hear from one family that had retinoblastoma that we were able to help. And now we hear from families all over the world every day, sometimes from countries I've never even heard of before. But we kind of follow the path that opens to us. So we've done a lot of work recently with the Buller Parsegian uh, Rare and Neglected Disease Center at the University of Notre Dame. And one of the students there had been doing some work last summer in Israel, and we were able to work uh, with them in Israel. And then uh, this year, he began working in India, which 
to me has always been sort of the ultimate goal to be able to successfully work with India because it has the largest incidence of childhood blindness, especially of these rare diseases, uh, retinoblastoma in particular. And the need is so great there, but the distance is so vast. It's how do I ever bridge that gap? And so in working with um, the group of students from the University of Notre Dame and then through some of the organizations and uh, medical professionals that we've been introduced to in India, we now have a group of volunteers that are right now getting ready to start putting together a program to help to educate and train first the, the medical students and the healthcare professionals in India about what to watch for in the GLOW, how to differentiate the diagnoses, and how to be able to refer patients through to more critical care. And then we hope to move from that towards an awareness campaign with a much broader uh, population to help to reach the all of the communities in India, which social media will only get you so far in a country like India where you know, there are many obstacles to care for the disenfranchised communities and the outer regions away from the city center. So we've just, we're learning as we go, but we just kind of follow the path. Um, even though we don't exactly know where it's going, we just have faith that uh, it will be what it will be and, and that uh, those doors and windows will keep opening as we keep connecting the dots. Well, that's a lovely place for us to stop. And we'll be back in our final section with Megan in just a minute. God and Other Delicacies has a weekly newsletter. If you'd like to subscribe, email me at godsdelicateshow at gmail.com and I'll put you on the list. Also, if you're listening to this show on iTunes right now, I'd love it if you scrolled to the bottom, hit five stars, and wrote a one to two sentence review. It really does help the show reach more listeners and it means a lot to me because I read them and it's nice to read nice things. All right, everybody, we're back with Megan. And Megan, there have been a couple of times on this show where I've been talking to someone that has such a grounded faith that feels alive and not burdensome. It seems like you have a pretty grounded and steady faith. And it just makes my mind goes, well, then when wasn't it steady? When have you been racked by fear? Is it, you know, I have to imagine the scariest moments in your life revolve around the discovery of these things with your children, these these challenges yeah. with your children. I can't imagine, yeah. you know, when you see that, oh, the challenge ahead, not only for you, obviously, we feel it, okay, what do I, I have to learn how to handle this now. I have to learn how to be the mother to this. But also then, of course, what does this mean for my child? How will I guide my child in the best way? Right. Neither of these things are, of course, you know right away that they're not going to be entirely debilitating, but they are dangerous in their own ways. Right. And right. and yeah, so, yeah, sure. please jump jump from there. I mean, for both for both of my boys with their diagnoses and with my son with his epilepsy, which you know he's had over fifty seizures in his life, so he's and they're wow. all grand mal tonic clonic, you know, fall like a stone seizures. But yeah, they take your breath away. And for Matthew, every, I still, you know, you hear a siren and you, 
your heart skips a beat and you, you know, you're just living in that perpetual waiting for the phone call that's going to tell you that he's in trouble. And with Ben, when we were diagnosed, I'll never forget pulling into that front circle of Children's Hospital. We knew we were being referred on from a pediatric ophthalmologist who knew it was either cancer or this other Coates disease, which could lead to having his eye removed. And as we pulled into that front circle, I, I will never forget that feeling of like looking, I've got, you know, there's helicopters landing overhead at the hospital. And I'm like, okay, I'm coming in here with one view of the world, but I could be walking out of here with something so different. And, you know, it's scary to take those steps. And it's, you know, it's scary to know, not know what's, what's right around the corner. And the same with my son, Matthew, with his epilepsy, knowing that it just makes you take everything in uh, in such a different way you know you really just are grateful for all that you have and you you know lean on that faith and you want to you know preserve this time and these moments and embrace all of those around you and and move past that fear and have that faith and it does it it is amazing that people that they have become is as much a part of those experiences as anything, even for my daughter Haley, who's yet to show me what her challenge will be, because she's got the world by the reins, by both reins. But um, you know, I think for all all of my children, they've watched each other go through challenges, and they've they're different because of it. They're more sensitive, they're more considerate of each other. I think they they don't take anything for granted either, and uh, that's been a, a huge lesson to learn, and I learn it from each of them as much as I hope I show it to them in my own actions. But yeah, that, that fear is still always there, but the faith is much bigger. Was there ever anybody in your family that handled Grace's death differently than you did? You have such a stability about you as you talk about these things. There seems to be a, a clarity about your point of view. You're the eldest of your sibling group. Do you think that's a role you filled or do you think that this is something that's just a kind of a through line in your family, that you all have a sort of calm grounding in your faith? Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you could see the smile on my face, I'm laughing as you said it, not because I'm not centered, but especially my my husband is, I am sort of the rudder, I guess you would say. He's such a big personality and he swings, you know, in both directions and he's he can be super larger than life, but he can be super sensitive and sentimental and kind of everything in between. Um, but he always teases me because I'm I'm not the one that gets really, it's, it's hard to get me like so excited that I'm jumping up and down and like, you know, yay, yay, yay. Yeah. <laughs> That's equally hard to get me so upset that I'm like angry or stomping or, you know, fiery mad, which is, is a blessing and a curse, I think he would say. Um, but it's very much my, my family's all the same way. My sister's very much the same way. My brother's the same way. My parents are both the same way. When Grace passed, my mother was so sick, and it was really uh, one of those decisions that had to be made. And she's the one that asked the surgeon to perform the baptism during the operation. It wasn't that they brought a priest in to baptize her. He had, she asked the surgeon to please baptize the baby. And um, that's just a part of who we are. I think uh, that has been a great uh, resource for me to have such a wonderful, strong family. And my husband's family is equally huge-hearted and right there to support every move. And that it all comes from that bigger belief in you know faith and love and service. And uh, I think that the work that we do, which I'm so grateful to be able to do, and my husband's so supportive of, and I'm so grateful that he allows me to do it, has been this huge additive thing that's helped to turn those 
that kind of adversity into something that's really been a way to help others and, and turn something that's been a negative into something that's a positive and something that is now seemed like such a devastating challenge is a huge blessing for us and for others. And so it's been a, a great gift, even, you know, even though they're both still struggling with the side effects of it with you know epilepsy and with Coates disease, but you know, it's made them bigger and stronger than I think they otherwise would be. Well, that's lovely. I think it's really funny that you were sitting there being like, yeah, like I am pretty stable. My husband basically <laughs> tells me I'm pretty stable all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I think it drives him crazy. It's like um, we were building our house and he was trying, you know, here he's building this whole house and he's put all this work into it and I don't react to anything. But then the man who did our front door had, had kind of been working on it behind the scenes and he like you know pulled off the cover to show me the front door and I was so moved I like started crying I was so happy and my husband's like really I built this freaking house not a single tear you don't say anything he's like then the guy comes with the door and you lose it I don't get it I just don't get you <laughs> that's great oh man I love that anecdote thank you when you think about the next 20 30 40 years what do you hope to achieve? You know, as you reference, you know, there's certainly an element of just trust the journey, have faith in the journey. Yeah. Do you try to envision what you might want? Do you leave open the possibility that something else could change? You know, what what do you see on the horizon? You know, it's funny when you when you're growing up, you know, you're so focused internally on who you are, how do people perceive you? What are you know, are you living up to who you're supposed to be and what is going to be the next step and what is right around the corner and how are you going to plan for it and making sure you're putting one foot in front of the other and that you've got to have a plan and have goals and all that. If there's one thing that I've learned, especially doing this Know the Glow campaign, when half the time I'm reaching across the world into another hemisphere, another another side of the planet, another culture that I don't even understand and I'm you know just scrambling to try and learn as we go, I think it's just that that belief in the um, – and kind of the the in, invisible, sort of the impossible. That you know, where can you go? And just enjoying the journey and not being so suddenly letting go of all of that of what do people think and how are you perceived, and instead just being open to just being part of that whole process and letting it go and just being there for others and and watching it circle back. It's been. Um, amazing thing to to do. I hope to be able to do the same with my children because I'd love to be able to just be there to support their journeys in whichever directions they hope to go and not to be one that's trying to constantly rein them in or redirect them, but just to give them that faith and, and belief in themselves to carry them forward. And that for me would be the greatest achievement is to then be at the end of the day, turn back around and say, wow, what how fun it was to watch them go through those journeys. I'm so grateful for the gift of being able to be here by their side as they go through it. And so lucky to um, have someone and my husband that is a partner that is, you know, that I look forward to growing old with and just being able to kind of share all the experiences that are yet to come our way. You referenced a little off mic at one point that you lamented a little bit that you didn't put your children in a, a religious school. I wanted you to talk a little bit more about that. What is that what does that mean for you? I think you were sort of talking about it in the context of the foundation that a religious training can be. Yeah. 
our children started off at that Calvary Christian School, which was a wonderful foundation in faith. In fact, you know, they were so, it was so much faith. I think it was almost a little, some people were worried it was too much faith at the time. But, you know, as someone said to me, even back then, they're like, you'll never know how much you miss it until you move past it. And, And when we switched to other schools and Matthew went into the public school system and uh, ben Haley moved to a non-denominational, you know, non-religious school. Suddenly, you know, that fell back on Brian and me to be able to provide that religious support. Um, and I realized just how much I enjoyed that growing up, even though it was just sort of there. It was never forced and kind of pushed on us, but it was just this wonderful kind of support that was right there. And I did worry was I doing them a disservice by not keeping them in a religious-based school and I still do worry about that especially now the world's gone so you know things get so upside down and with things shifting so quickly and like sand underneath them without that uh, real structure of support I worried that uh, it would you know that I was doing them a disservice and so I still do have a hard time with that however I know that the people that they're turning into reassures me every step of the way that what we've given them is more than enough. And they're so far ahead of where I was at their age, even though they have so much more to try and uh, understand and filter through. But I have no doubt they will be extraordinary people that that have built their own faith-based strength and support in themselves and in our family and and our traditions. But yeah, it was definitely a concern at the time. Is there any topic in particular that jumps out at you as something that you wish you had help with in their schooling? You didn't feel like it was something that you and your husband had to take on yourselves to help guide them. You feel like maybe they're, they don't have it the way I'd like them to have it in their formal schooling, so I have to make sure that I am engaging them on this topic. Is there a topic that you feel like uh, I wish I had a little bit of help where somebody else was helping guide them in this particular direction. Yeah, I mean, I think just the general, the fact that God has been taken out of so much of our world really is concerning to me. I mean, and I and I think you know, even with the topic of your podcast with God and other delicacies, it's like I give you so much credit for being willing to put it out there because anymore people are almost afraid to show their faith and to have faith and to really, you know, share that conviction and their belief. It's unfortunate that it's not part of their everyday the way it was for us growing up or for me, especially growing up, you less so because you're so much younger. But, you know, for us, it was just part of the everyday and just woven in so naturally. You never thought about it. It was just part of who you were. And now you have to go searching for it more. And that, I think, is a shame. I, I want to ask you a question. I, I, One of the things I'm working with, I feel like, with faith is that it it has become so intertwined with a person's politics that it is very difficult to separate the two. And it does not mean that it's in any way that a person is one thing and then you can assume the other thing. It's that is not at all the case. There is there is a national narrative about that or a, or even in some cases an international narrative about that. And in some cases that is true, of course. You know, there is a, the overarching 
political dynamic is if you are religious, you are conservative. And if you are not religious, you are liberal. That's, of course, totally not the case on both sides of the aisle. I think my, the thing that interests me about you is that you are in a faith community that you probably feel very connected to many of the people in it. Do you find that the politics and religion intertwine in ways that makes both of them difficult to talk about? Yeah, I think um, <sighs> politics is such a huge subject, but politics and even like this whole change in the way history is being taught and, and the way we're kind of changing our our world for our children um, and some of their the curriculum. I think it's just we're going in such a weird direction. I, I think it's such a shame because I actually think that Democrat or Republican both sides want the best for America. Both sides want the best for the world. There's so much more they have in common that is so undiscussed. It's like there's so much ground in the middle, and yet there's no middle ground. <laughs> mm. And I find it such a unique situation that we've become so polarized when really it's just much ado about nothing, in my opinion. I think that the core elements of both sides are probably very, very much on the same path. 95% of the time, I think it's the 5% of issues that people hold so tight to that they they aren't able to have a, a conversation anymore and just discuss, help me understand why, you know, help me see it from your side of view. To have those kinds of discussions, you just don't see it ever taking place. And the same I'm, I'm finding is starting to happen in the schools where it's like, you know, I know people want, all teachers want the best for our children and they want to be able to teach them the truth. And I agree there are probably some things that we need to correct in our historical stories about how America came to be. But to even have a discussion, everything has become such a hot button topic that I'm like, where are we going? This is not a healthy direction. And it's kind of like when I go back to like looking at my husband and I, when we're trying to figure out how to bring the two of us together and then how to raise children and how to find a faith beneath them that supports both of the best of what we both bring to the table. And I wish we were doing that more as a nation in politics because I think without it, we're just unraveling at the seams. And it makes me so nervous for my kids because the world will bring enough trouble. You don't need to invite it. It's like, you know, if I learn one thing with Matthew and Ben, it's that don't go out there searching for problems just be grateful for what you have in every moment that you have it because things will come your way and you need to be ready to weather those storms. You need to have someone by your side that will do that with you and have that support system in place to carry you forward. And um, sometimes I think there's invented drama and it becomes just tenfold in a hurry and it just gets starts to like, you know, out of control into this wildfire. And I wish we could come back to some sanity in the middle because I really think it's there. I just wish we had a better option that would, you know, bring us all together in a more united way. I think faith, actually, we've come further. In my in my experience, like, I think people are much more open to, maybe it's because there's so many different faiths. Like I've always said, at the end of the day, we might pass through this world and come to find out, well, this religion had five of the right answers and this religion had four and this one had seven. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it does it, you know, it's all like who knew what, but no one has all the right answers and we could learn so much more from learning from each other. And I, I think we've kind of come more towards that now because there are so many different religions. Whereas I think in the current political climate that we're in, 
we're kind of so stuck in the weeds that even though both sides believe that their side wins this election, that the world will get back on track and be, you know, on, on solid footing moving forward in a positive direction. <laughs> and yet if the opposing side wins, those same people are like, the world is over. It's like, it's so fascinating that we've become so polarized, but I think at the end of the day, we will all be all right. And I look forward to a day when we're kind of able to coming back to that same situation where it's like, okay, maybe this side has six of the right answers and this side has four of the right answers. And well, can't we just try and figure out a way to blend them into answers that work for everybody? Megan, I look forward to that day too. (laughs) (laughs) And we might be waiting for a while (laughs) (laughs) Megan, thank you so much for chatting with me today. I really appreciated hearing your story. I really appreciated um, the calm, stable, faithful, warm, outgoing, and, and generous through line that is Megan Weber. And I am very glad to get uh, the anecdote about you crying at the door, because I feel like that really <laughs> gave me a window into the kinds of things that really set you off. Things like doors, windows, uh, yeah. anything that like, you know, if you open the microwave to the, that door, does that door make you cry too? Are you, if a door opens? <laughs> no, I just, I really appreciate, I'm so the opposite. And my wife, frankly, is too. We are very emotional, very on the the roller coaster emotions of the artistic side. So probably more in line with your your husband's dynamic. But I really enjoyed talking to you today and hearing, you know, these these stories about all this stuff and especially the good work you're doing uh, with your charity. Oh, well, thank you so much. Oh, it's been fun. I've loved being a part of your podcast here. I think the work that you're doing is so fantastic. I give you so much credit for going down this path. I just think it's such a gift that you're giving to your listeners. So I look forward to listening in as you move forward and to following you as we go. Well, thank you, Megan. And thank you all for listening. 